when something's not working, we so often step away from the conversation, but that's when you need to really step in, step in, be open and be really willing to hear what the other person has to say. And even if it hurts, even if you don't agree with it, listen to them, make sure they feel heard and then go away and reflect on it. Because if, if they're saying, well, I find you like this, that's a fact. It doesn't mean you're that person, but mm -hmm. it means that's how they're experiencing you. So dig in, understand, and then you can actually go and work and reshape the relationship. Whereas often what we do when something's not working is we go, oh, well, it's their fault. They need to change rather than going, okay, well, what am I doing? What am I bringing to this, this relationship that isn't working? And how do I change what I can change in me? Welcome to the Greg Allen Podcast. Thanks for joining us where we talk about life. I truly believe that everyone has a story to tell and a lesson to teach, and that's what this show is all about. So if you're enjoying the show, please head over and leave us a review. It helps us connect, inspire, and help more people like you. And I just want to do a big shout out to you for taking the time to grow and improve. So good on you. Keep doing what you're doing, and good luck in life. Hey, Michelle, how are you going? I'm really good. How are you? Oh, really good. Thanks. I'm excited for having a chat today. Um, you know, I've, I'm about to jump into another coaching session and teach a little bit around leadership and team development. So what a great chat this is going to be. Oh, look, I'm looking forward to it. Although I am jealous because you're in Byron Bay and I'm in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. Well, how's it going in Melbourne at the moment? Oh, uh, look, lockdown mark two. Um, I think it's an experiment in resilience. It's, um, yeah. It's interesting. And I mean, I've been saying this to clients that I work with, we all need to be very kind and considerate of the people that we're working with because everyone will have different experiences mm. of what this means for them. And, you know, don't expect your team to be as productive as they are normally, because, you know, I look at myself and I'm a pretty together person. And I've had days where I have what I call COVID brain fog and I don't have COVID, but it's just because of the heaviness of what is going on. There's just days where you don't work the way you normally work. And so it's really important for leaders to understand what's going on for them, but also really understand what's going on for their team. Yeah. So what sort of advice are you giving to people who are in Melbourne uh, dealing with this, who are business owners at the moment? It really is about understanding that each person is an individual. I think often when we think about teams, we think about a collective, but that collective is made up of individuals and every individual will have a unique circumstance. And so for some people, they'll be, you know, they'll be breezing through this. For other people, they'll be homeschooling. They may have family members that are sick. Um, they may have, you know, side businesses or family that they know that have lost jobs or are losing jobs. You know, there's a lot of in, um, insecurity around employment at the moment, and that's feeding into how people are behaving and their concern and interest in speaking up about things. So, and then also leaders as well are facing a lot of challenge. You know, I was running a session a couple of weeks ago with some CFOs and I said to them, well, who's taking care of you? And there was like deathly silence. Oh. And so it's, you know, it's not just leaders asking about their teams. It's teams actually going back to their leaders and going, what do you need from us? How, do, how can we help you? Mm. You know, to get through this, I mean, it really does sound trite because everyone keeps saying, you know, we're all in this together. We are. The only way we're going to get through it is if we really 
sit down and go, who are you as a human and human to human? How do we help each other? How are we kind and considerate and recognizing that people's bandwidths are different um, and their tolerance levels are different too. I mean, I'm even finding it with me, things that would normally just be water off a duck's back are actually <laughs> annoying me. And that's just because there's stuff going on. So your bandwidth for coping is less, yeah, it's a very interesting world at the moment, Greg. Very interesting world. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling it too. Like with the clients that I work with, there's all different levels, you know, that people are struggling and some people are, have, you know, who work for people have been completely shut down and finding it really hard. But then there's other people who are still finding ways to get the work done and becoming quite creative around um, how they get the work done and make the money still. Yeah, and it really is challenging some paradigms around what's possible. And I, you know, I do a lot of, um, you know, facilitation and training work. And I had a, you know, a, a fixed mindset around how certain things can be done, particularly some of my work, which is very experiential. And I was really, oh, there's no way I can take this online. It won't work. And then I had um, clients who said to me, well, we need you to. And I thought, well, I'm happy to experiment if you're happy to experiment with me. Um, and I've run sessions where they've gone really well. And it's been a real eye-opener for me to go, what is actually possible? What can you do online? What can't you do online? And so that has been good. And yes, you're seeing it with other businesses as well. Certain businesses have been able to pivot really quickly um, and to adapt. Um, other businesses, because of what they do, it is a matter of, well, this is what I do and I, I can't shift. Um, and so in that type of environment, it's then, well, what can you do? Are the, where are the things that you perhaps can even sort of look at processes and systems that now might be the right time to tidy up stuff that perhaps when you're in the midst of something running and being really busy, you haven't had time to do. So, you know, it's an opportunity to sort of sit back and reflect and also work out where you really want to go with things. Yeah, the amount of people that get stuck in, the, you know, getting the work done mode, like they're constantly working, 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 and it might be a blessing in disguise for a lot of those people being forced to stay at home and work on mm. the business for once. Well, I certainly had that in round one. So round one, I used to fly every week um, and I haven't been on a plane since March and I was about to say I haven't left my home since March, but I have, I'm, I'm exercising a lot. That's the only thing that keeps me sane. Yeah. Um, but I look at it and I go, you know, I flew every week. And so I was always moving and now I'm home all the time. So in the first wave, I certainly found, oh, wow, there's probably a recovery period, a good couple of weeks of my body just going, oh my God, yay, catch up on sleep. And then I discovered this whole sort of layer of creativity and I found um, I was tapping into things I hadn't been able to tap into for a while, which reminded me, wow, I actually think I must have been pretty tired, but not have recognized how tired I was. Round two is different. Round two, I'm noticing people's energy levels are different to round one. With round two, uh, there's a bit of a I'll bugger it. We just have to get on with it. Um, even though this is hard, we, we, things that we didn't make decisions on around one, we now just have to make decisions on. But yeah. I think there is, there's a, there's, it's a heavier um, feeling and sentiment in the system to what we were experiencing in round one. Round one felt like a bit of a novelty, you know, everyone was baking bread and getting into things that were creative and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, rediscovering arts and crafts and puzzles, whereas this feels harder. And so that's what I'm noticing as well in terms of clients that I'm dealing with. That it's sort of like there's a, 
there's a hangover. You know, we got through round one, we thought it was going to be okay. Round two is harder. And also for leaders who are ma managing geographically dispersed teams, it's been interesting because they'll have people in Queensland and WA, the experience is very different to people who are in Victoria. So how does that work? How do you manage quite different needs for your team? Yeah, what would you suggest like leaders and um, business leaders and directors and people who are managing teams do? Uh, would they put more time and effort into the people in the more severely, severely affected areas? I think they need to. And I think that it's also, I was chatting to someone yesterday and I said, it's almost like you need a care plan, you know, really sitting down with each team member and understanding what they need. Um, and also just because someone's not in WA, sorry, in Victoria, doesn't mean that they're not going to be experiencing issues. Um, other states, there'll be people who have anxiety, like even people at the moment in New South Wales may have anxiety because they look at what's happening in Victoria and think, oh, wow, what's going to happen if we end up there? So that sort of anticipation um, can create concerns as well. But it's really incumbent on leaders to go, what do what does each person need and what's the support that we can provide? Um, and, you know, I've seen various teams where they've given people days off. You, do, you need time off, take time off. Someone else will pick up the workload. You just take time off, work out what you need to do um, to make sure that you're okay and then come back, um, you know, with a, in a couple of days time and we'll work through what you, you know, what we do next. So, you know, it's extraordinary times. I don't think, any of us in our lifetime have ever experienced anything like this. Um, I mean, I contrast my year this year with last year. This time last year, I'd been to San Antonio, I'd been to Israel, I was heading to China. Um, and you kind of go, hmm, I don't know when's the next time I'm going to be going overseas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's sort of, it's sort of like uh, the first time we, if you watch the stock market and the way it reacted to uh, the level of fear when we didn't know that we we're going to get any government support or anything it was yeah. just like chaos and it just a massive crash and then um the government's support came in and then it was just spiked right back up which i still think it i don't know if that's a true reflection of what's happening i don't think it's a true reflection i i'll be honest i think it's i think it's nuts yeah it's nuts. <laughs> um I, I look at it and go that's really interesting i um i keep having this conversation with my husband where i go People talk about the economic cliff being end of September when JobKeeper was supposed to be finishing. And obviously now it's being extended. But the economic cliff is January, February next year. Yeah. And that's when the banks start saying all of these people who have had mortgage freeze, freezes, you're going to need to start paying mortgages back um, and business lending debt back. And if you don't, we're going to need to have conversations with you about winding up businesses. Yeah. And that's when the real pain is going to, to hit. You know, you hear the term people talking about zombie businesses, which is such a horrible expression um, because I'm sure the people who are continuing, they're genuinely hoping that they can somehow find a way through this. Um, and, and also trying to do the right thing by their staff and all that kind of stuff. So you know, we've, got a, we've got a long way to go. I certainly know in my business planning, when I sat down and did my you know, forecast for this financial year, my first six months of this year, I'm planning on being leaner um, than what it would be normally because I can just see it. You know, yes, there's work coming in, but there's still unpredictability mm -hmm. around what can be done and how it can be done. I was just talking to a client this morning and I was meant to be in Sydney on the 23rd and the 24th of September. And I said, well, that won't be happening. Um, and so we're working through, you know, how do we restructure that? Does it go online? Or is it something that we go, actually, it's much better if we do it face-to-face. -face, so do we push it to next year? Um, so there's a, yeah, I, 
I find the share market fascinating. I, I don't think it's reflecting what's really going on. And, and yeah. so, but they always say the share market is irrational. So at the moment it's being irrationally op- optimistic. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think there was that, that sudden fear and then we got the support and everyone went back to normal almost for a while. And we've had this second outbreak in Victoria and around the world is happening as well. And, you know, now it becomes like, oh, maybe this isn't going away. And everyone's starting to feel like, oh, I'm going to have to take action, like you said, and actually do something this time. We've got a long way to go. We've got a very long way to go. I was listening to someone last night and even when they talk about, you know, vaccine, the vaccine isn't a cure and the vaccine may not. One, we don't know whether which of these vaccines will work. Um, we don't know how effective the vaccine's going to be work. We, we don't know whether there's going to be side effects. You know, so there's a whole raft of different um, complications associated with that. And that doesn't mean you don't get the vaccine. I mean, I certainly know, you know, they'll prioritise access as they should in terms of who gets access to it first. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'd certainly be lining up and getting the vaccine because my view is that's also part of my responsibility to society because the more people who are vaccinated, the less likely, you know, you're then not likely to be a transmitter of it. Um, but, you know, even in terms of going overseas, that's, that's potentially years away. Mm. Um, I used to run a lot of courses where there are public programs, you had big groups of people in a room. I don't see me getting lots of people in a room for a very long time. Um, there's a session I'm meant to be doing later this year. It was you know, 150 people. And I said to the organiser, I said, where would you get a venue that could fit 150 people and with social distancing? And what's the reputational risk you run if you hold the event and you put all the right measures in place and then there's an outbreak from that event that will mm-hmm. stick with you. And oh, so... You ha- yeah, and so you have to think about all of that when you're looking at the sort of events. And same with companies, they have to think about what's the risk and what's the duty of care that I hold to my employees that if I am going to be doing events or making people come back into the office, can I be sure that they're going to be safe? Yeah, totally. Hey, I'd love to find out more about you and how you got to writing so many books on team leadership and <laughs> going right back and I'd love to hear about your, your story and your journey and yeah how, tell me about maybe your first book and we'll go from there like yeah sure book and what was it about uh so yes because I'm up to book number three um first book was five and a half years ago um and it was called step up how to build your influence at work and it was all about how do you help people who are very technically good at their job so they might be you know, the person who's in finance or audit or um, compliance or HR or um, engineering. So they're, you know, they're, they're technicians. Yep. They're good at what they do. They're very tactical. They get the job done at a tactical level. But as you progress through an organization, and as you would know, you get to a certain point when it's less about your technical skills. It's actually more about your ability to influence. It's more about your ability to build coalitions of support, to be able to get people to buy into ideas and be able to influence decisions and processes so that change can happen in an organization. And that's what the book is all about. And it harks back to when I I used to be head of compliance for a, um, a bank. And when I was hired as head of compliance, there were a few people who had conniptions because I wasn't a lawyer. And so that was unusual because most people in those roles were lawyers, but I wasn't being hired to be the lawyer. I was hired because of my ability to build good relationships with people, build good teams, 
influence senior stakeholders in the organisation. And so, yes, I had to be able to understand the technical aspects of the role. I had to be able to position arguments. I had to know what I was talking about. So you couldn't, you know, sort of abrogate your responsibility on the technical side. But I had lawyers who worked with me. And so my role was not to analyse legislation. It was to ask the right questions mm. and then to have the right conversations with people in the organisation. Um, and so that's really where it stemmed from, because when I was in that role, I found a lot of people who were technically very good, but they really struggled to be able to get stuff done because they couldn't influence people. They couldn't understand the agendas of other people in the organization. They didn't know how to position arguments. Um, if they went sort of head to head against someone who was more senior than them, that almost got a water because for them, that was like, oh, I, I, you know, someone's challenging me. I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. And so that's what the book was really all about was saying to make progress. So this is influence for good, not influence for evil. This is not the Machiavellian kind of, I want to be the sort of top dog on the totem pole. So I have power over everybody. This is much more about, I need to understand how to influence so that I can actually get good outcomes in the organization. I can influence and make sure and help the organization make good decisions and get stuff done in a, in a way that's productive and healthy and sustainable. Um, and so it really starts from that premise that often when we think about influence, we think about the other person, mm. but to influence, you've actually got to start with you because you can't influence others if you don't understand yourself. So that's the starting point. Um, and then it kind of just went from there. So that was the first book. And it was, it was interesting. I, um, I'm a writer by nature. So I love writing. My husband will quite happily say, you're an, yeah, Michelle, and you're a nerd. And I go, yeah, yeah, I'm proud. I've got the t-shirt. I'm a nerd and I love it. So I love learning. Um, and when I left corporate to do what I'm doing now, the kind of impetus behind doing this was I love being challenged and I love learning, but I wanted autonomy. And the only way to get autonomy was to work for myself. Um, and that's what I get to do now. I get to work for myself. I get to have control over what I do and what I don't do. And I get to learn all day, every day, and then share that knowledge with other people. So it's, it's hard work on, a, on many occasions, but it's awesome. Yeah, I love so, it. Good. so good. Hey, I'd love to uh, go back to what you were saying about around influence and use for good and, and not use for evil. I think the standard thing for people to go through is you say oh, they've been influenced, they often go to the negative, don't they? They don't think that it can be used for good often. Yeah. Um, I, I have this discussion all the time with my clients and I know a lot of people out there who are salespeople have an adversity to selling, you know, and I think it's more around understanding when you can influence someone to get a really powerful return on investment or something that they would love and you know that they would love it rather than selling for the sake of selling, which is... Mm. You know, using it for bad, I guess. Like, I don't care what your, your vision is. I don't care what your why is. I just want to sell you this because that's my purpose. That's bad. But if we ask the questions and we take the time to get to know someone and we understand the product and the service or whatever it is that we're delivering, then a dollar, dollar value is really irrelevant, isn't it? It is. And that's what I always say to people. It's about what are you in service of? Because when you think about sales, what you're trying to sell is, well, I'm in service of the other person. So if I'm in service of the other person, I really do want to understand them. I need to understand where they're coming from, what their needs are, because, and you'll see it all the time. I mean, and you'd get the same. I get approached by people all the time, these randoms trying to sell you this, that, and everything else on LinkedIn. And you think, 
interesting. You know nothing about me because you're actually pitching to me products that I actually sell to other people. So why don't you get to know me better? Then you could actually work out whether this is a worthwhile endeavor for both of us. Yeah. And so I find that really interesting because it's such a scattergun approach. Um, and I remember early on when I started my business, I had this... Um, program that I was, you know, um, involved with, which was really very useful in terms of helping me understand my craft and how do I make the transition out of corporate to running a business. But there was often an ethos, which was, you know, every meeting you have with someone, every, you know, every conversation is a sales conversation. And I thought, actually, no, that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm a relational person. I build mm -hmm. relationships with people. And I thought I'm throwing that out the window because that doesn't fit with me and who I am. And I think that's the key thing is to know authentically who you are and what you stand for, because then you will find the sales process or the technique or the approach that works for you. And so for me, I just build relationships with people. And what it means is I'll have someone who I met five years ago who, you know, they'll be on my database and they'll get emails from me on occasions. And then they'll ring me and say, Oh, I've been waiting for the right moment to work with you. And I'd love to work with you now. Yeah. And I think, People know when it's the right time to, to come and to get what it is that you're offering. Um, whereas if you push the offer and it feels like a push, people recoil because no one likes feeling like they're backed into a corner and you can tell when you're being sold to and that feels uncomfortable. It's almost like the hairs on the back of your neck crawl up. Yeah, pushed in the back of a corner is a perfect analogy too. It's the fight or flight, like get away from me. I've got to escape, get away. So yeah. That's interesting. And then even the other thing you said around, you've got to know yourself as well. You've really got to understand yourself. Um, can you talk a little more around that? I think it's understanding who you are and what you stand for and therefore who's your ideal client. Um, I'm clear about the type of people that thrive in terms of working with me. And I'll often say this, particularly with coaching. So I do coaching work as well. And, you know, we would have very different coaching styles. And so I will often say to coaching, you know, prospective coaching clients, I'm not for everybody and I'm not designed to be for everybody. So I'm going to talk you through how I work and how I think. Um, and if I'm not the right person, I'll put you onto somebody else because it's about finding that right connection point. There needs to be the right level of challenge, the right level of connection. Um, but for those sorts of relationships, you need to be able to understand yourself. Um, and particularly in a sales role these days, people are very skeptical. Um, and I think, you know, they talk about we've lost trust in large sort of institutions but I think we're more wary in general, which is kind of incongruous because at the same time, then we post our lives on sort of platforms and social media. Yeah. Um, but I think if you're trying to sell and you don't understand yourself, it, you can see through it. And the person on the other end then won't connect with you. Yeah, hundred percent. So where did you come up? Where, where have you learned this? Is this something you learned at school through, you know, university from your parents? Like where has this come from? This understanding? Okay relationship. Yeah, look, it's interesting. I think it's a mixture of things. So, um, you know, I was the youngest of four children. I grew up in a fairly academic household. Mum was a teacher. My father was an academic. Um, and I had very, very super smart siblings. And I was, you know, I always had to work really, really, really hard at school. So I've always been a hard worker. Um, but I think I learned through the years and particularly when I got into, um, you know, working in a corporate environment, that the relationship part was everything, you know, because I'd look around me and I'd see people who were really good and really smart and they were often not doing as well as the people who in some ways weren't as 
academically or technically clever, but they were very good at the relationship part, very good at building networks, very good at building those sort of deep relationships across the, across the organization. And so to sit back and watch that, I realized, you know, you know, I was ambitious. I wanted to do well and to do well, I had to learn this. And it's interesting because people who see me, I do a lot of public speaking and people when they meet me for the first time will often go, oh yeah, but you know, it's easy for you, Michelle. You're so confident. And I was like, this is learned. Yeah. I wasn't born like this. I remember when I first started in corporate and you'll probably laugh when I say this, but I used to sit, you know, I'd get invited to go to a meeting and be excited because when you were quite young, it was exciting to get, get invited to meetings, um, particularly if there are people who are more senior than you. And I'd sit there for big chunks of the meeting, almost slightly hyperventilating because... <laughs> paralyzed. Yeah, it was like you're paralyzed in fear because yeah. you're going, oh my God, I haven't said anything. I'm halfway through. I still haven't said anything. Oh my God, I've got 10 minutes to go. I still haven't said anything. And if I say nothing, they're going to think I'm an idiot and they'll never invite me again. And so of course, by then, you know, all of the triggers, you know, you are definitely in fight, flight and freeze. Mm. And I learned that if I wanted to progress in the organization, I had to be able to manage that. It didn't mean I wouldn't experience the fear, but I learned how do I capture the fear? How do I capture and notice that emotion and turn that into good in a way that, hey, this is important to me, but I now need, to, I can do something about it. Um, so yeah, all of this is learned. And I often think that's the good thing because people think, well, if I don't have charisma, I don't have any hope. And I go, it's not about charisma. Yeah. Um, it's actually, and sometimes the people who are charismatic can be a little bit shallow. This is really about depth and meaning and building really really great relationships with people but that has to start with you knowing you yes yeah, a technique isn't it really at the end of the day yeah it's a technique and like all techniques it's a skill and you can yeah. learn it if you want to learn it yeah so what was it like growing up with uh, academic parents because for me my dad was a chemist uh, but was working and he had a business as well health and safety uh, mum was a stay-at-home mum yep. and you know i i there wasn't much pressure to perform at school for me. And I, I fell into more of a sporting sort of arena, uh, really competitive in sport and push myself there rather than academics. So I'd love to hear what it was like for you in an academic family, especially with so, so many siblings. So smart as well. Um, the, I was the complete opposite. I was hopeless at school sport. And I still remember when I was in grade one and mum and dad were thinking, oh, fantastic. You know, it's a school race and I was almost winning. And mum and dad were like, oh, fantastic. Finally, we've got someone in the family who's athletic. And then I saw mum and dad and I stopped and I waved. And so I lost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, year one. Do you know what's so funny? Year one races. When you go and watch the kids running and they're just like looking over here like oh what's happening and they're all running on different angles and yeah it's so, good. <laughs> so yeah so no no hope look I, I think the great thing about mum and dad is they encouraged learning and a love of learning you know so every christmas you know you get a gift but you'd always get books easter birthdays you would always get books if there was a celebration of some kind you would always get a book um and they encourage you just to do your best. And it's interesting because I never got pressure from mum and dad. Where I got pressure was teachers. And so it's really interesting the impact that teachers could have. Because I look at my life and go, it could have gone one or two ways. Every single teacher who ever worked with my sisters or my brother, if I had them, those teachers would say to me, oh, 
I had Jenny last year. She was smart. Are you as smart as she is? Oh, look at that manipulation. Oh, yeah. And I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of academically, you know, my sister went off to become a, a doctor. So, like, you know, but very different. I found my feet at university. I fell on my feet at university. And then I worked out when I got into a corporate world. This is where I can thrive. I understand this environment. I can make this work. Mm. Um, whereas at school, I did well. I was above average, but I never did as well as my siblings. You know, both my, my brother and my sister were ducks at the school. Um, and so, like, I look at it and I often think for people who are in positions of influence, you don't realize the impact you have by casual throwaway comments. So, for me, those comments from the teachers spurred me to work harder. If I'd been a different personality, it would have spurred me to have been the recalcitrant kid in the corner, throwing mm -hmm. chewing gum and, you know, chalk at the teachers. Um, yes, yeah, so I was back in the days when we had chalk and blackboards. Um, and so I think, you know, it's really interesting. We often forget that when we're in positions of power, the influence that we can have on others. So I was really lucky. I was blessed in so many levels because I had a great family, very supportive parents. Um, but, you know, there were times when it was really hard. And for me, it just inspired in me this absolute drive to work hard and prove myself. And so it's, it's interesting, even if I go back to when I released the first book, um, I remember the publisher saying to me, oh, this is so exciting, first book, how do you feel? And I said, I feel like I'm going to vomit. And she went, oh, okay. She goes, that's unique. <laughs> she goes, I don't normally have that as an expression. And she said, why? And I said, I'm waiting for the world to judge me and to tell me that I'm a failure. Um, and so it's interesting. So I hark all of that back still to childhood. Mm. So even now you could go, I'm running a successful business. I've just done my third book. I've started my PhD. So clearly I know how to get things done, but still there's always this little seed of doubt that sits in the back of your head. And that's why I often say to people, you know, you can look at the surface and go on surface. She seems confident. She's articulate. She does well, but everyone's got foibles. Everyone's got something inside them which is a seed of self-doubt and it's about yeah. what you do with that doubt whether it sort of constrains you or whether it inspires you to move forward yeah i think i'm i'm the sort of personality like you that like when that creeps in i just want to prove to myself that i'm worthy you know yeah, like same absolutely. sort of thing yeah yeah and um, it's interesting though because often what i found particularly when i was in corporate is people would say oh god you know michelle was so ambitious and i think you've missed the point i'm not ambitious against you i'm ambitious against myself yeah. this is me proving to myself what i can do and so i often think you know sometimes we can very it's very easy to put a negative spin on people who are ambitious and i think it's about what's what are they ambitious for um, because ambition is, can be really healthy, but it's whether it's actually used in a way that's destructive and a way that's bringing down other people as opposed to elevating the individual. Yeah, I, I definitely relate with that. And um, the ambition, like people will see me as hyper competitive, but I'm actually competing against myself every single time. Like yep. I want to prove to myself I can do better than the last, which can be, become a bit of a, a cycle of like, I don't know if you felt it as well, where you just, you go and go and go and go and go and you realize, why am I working so hard? Oh, look, well, that was my reflection when I, we had the first lockdown for COVID yeah. because the question is, when is enough enough? Mm. And that's the challenge because, you know, I'm really lucky. I married an amazing man. Um, but I remember when I came home last year and I said, oh, I'm about to start book three. And there was just like this silence and you could see him <laughs> thinking, 
I want to be supportive. I really want to be supportive, but I know what it means when book three comes along. Um, and so, and, but for me, it was like, well, I want book three to be done because I am studying my PhD and that means I need the next six years to get the PhD done and I won't have time to do that sort of intense writing. Yeah. Um, but it is really working through what does enough look like for you? And for me, that means different things to different people. And I had a, a conversation a couple of years ago when I first started the business and one of my girlfriends said to me, I'm sure you work too hard. Now, this, my response might sound a bit callous, so bear with me as I go through it. But I said to her, why is that a problem for you? I said, because that's not a problem for me or my husband. And she kind of went, like, you could see the reaction on her face because she wasn't expecting that. And then we dug into it. The issue was not about me working too hard. The issue was she didn't feel I had enough time for her. And I yeah. said, that's a different conversation. So mm -hmm. if I don't have enough of, you, of me to be able to give you because of what is the business is taking out of me, then that's a different conversation. And we need to talk about that. Um, and so I've learned to not, it's almost like not judge myself by the expectations of others. You know, Craig and I are very clear on who we are, who we are as a couple, where we want to get to in life, what it is that we want to do. And so that then makes it really easy to say no to things as well. And also what I want to say yes to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Have you got kids? No, unfortunately, we could never have children. Okay. So no we have, I don't know whether you can, I know you, you could probably see, but your listeners won't be able to. I have a dog. I have Barney who is sitting on the couch just beside me. So he's my little furball. He's a support right there. Yeah, he is. He is. Look, you know, um, I would love to have been able to have children. We were just one of those couples. It just didn't work for us. But yep. I often think I'm a, I am one of those people who, I always find the way it's like you reframe. And I remember when we found out we couldn't have children, I went and bought a very expensive bottle of French champagne and I came home and I said to Craig, we're going to write a list of all the things that we can do because we can't have children. And we just reshaped our life and yeah. we worked out where it is that we want to focus our energy. And as my, my sisters very kindly said, this is fantastic that you can't have children because that means that when you die, you can leave all the money to my kids. <laughs> <laughs> As a reframe right there for you. Yeah, she said that. She said that with love. Yeah, but you've made you've made life work for you just the way it is. It's awesome, you know. Like your life wouldn't be the same, you know, as yeah, it is and now. The, and that makes and you, I think, you. Yeah, and I think you have to. And I think that's the thing in life. We never know what other people are going through. Um, and if I go back to once again my time when I was in corporate, I had some fairly nasty slurs thrown against me because I didn't have kids. Um, I had people who said, oh, she chose to not have children. You know, she's such a career woman. Now that was not said with love or kindness. That yeah. was said to denigrate me. Um, now the people who that was often said to who knew me were like, I think you need to double check what you've just said because you don't know anything about Michelle's life yeah. um, or who she is as a person. And so that's why I often think, you know, I just, God, we can be so mean to each other. We make these assumptions about people that we know them. Um, you know, comment that I look back to, you know, Julia Gillard when she was called deliberately barren. I mean, that's just a revolting comment. If she yeah. choose, you know, for people who choose to not have children, that's their right. And then for people who don't have children, you know, they will make their own way through this in terms of the choices that, that we make. Um, just as we need to be supportive of people who have children and they've got complications in their life. Just a little bit of more understanding, a bit more love, and I think we'd be okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think like people, I think this uh, whole thing of bringing other people down just so that you, they don't feel bad. We've got to understand that when you get any sort of criticism or slur or 
anger against you, I think it, often it was a reflection of them and not yourself. You know, like a lot of people take that as they said this, that means it's true. Yeah. It's often a reflection of the person saying it. And, yeah, uh, look, it is. It is. And often it's said um, because the person inside is hurting. And yeah. I'll often say that, you know, you know, if I look at, I often find interesting a lot of the coaching work that I'm doing is obviously with people who are working in corporates and they'll come to me for a number of different reasons. But, you know, even if they're coming to me because, you know, Michelle, I've, you know, I've just landed a more senior role and I want to solidify in the role or I'm looking to do something else now with my career, invariably a big chunk of the meeting or the sessions is spent talking about relationships and the relationships at work that aren't working. And then when you dig into the relationship, it's often just based on misunderstanding. You know, they haven't spent enough time with the other person. That person hasn't spent enough time with them. Um, and I'll often share a story of when I was um, in a senior leadership role and we were doing this activity where, and it was all designed to create connection across the team. And so it was stop, start, continue. So I had to sit down with each of your colleagues one-on-one and what did you want them to stop doing, start doing and continue doing? Um, so I'm with my colleague and I'm fairly diplomatic in terms of what I say. And then she gets to me and she says, you spy on me, you judge me, I find you hypercritical. And like, I'm thinking that sitting there as this sort of barrage of criticism is coming towards me. The best thing I did was keep my mouth shut and I just let her do what she needed to do. And I took mm. it, went home that night and sort of said to Craig, oh my God. And, you know, kind of processed what was going on. And then I thought about it. I thought there's something in me that she sees in, in my action that she's interpreting to be what it is that she's just expressed to me. Yeah. So I went to work the next day and I said to her, look, I'd really love to have lunch today. And she was like, why? And I said, I think it would be really helpful to us to talk through that conversation yesterday. And she was still kind of like, she was really sceptical. Really anyway, strange. we went to lunch and I explained where I come from talked about my history and talked about my love of learning. And I said, I look at your work and I can't do what you do. You think so differently to me. And so the reason I ask a lot of questions is I am genuinely interested in how you think. Like I love the way you outline problems and I'm asking questions because I want to learn from you. Now, if you look at it in the context of the work and the environment, you know, I was seen as ambitious. I'd done well. She thought my questioning and my interest in work was because I was doing that to try and find fault. Mm. I was trying to somehow find some angle so I could better position myself without, you know, we had the same team leader. When I started talking about how I think and how I work, totally changed the dynamic of our relationship. We went from you know, obviously a fairly, no, well, it wasn't even toxic. It was just a relationship that was not effective to one where, you know, I haven't worked with her now for 10 years and we still have lunch every, you know, two or three times a year. Um, and it's just, I often say to people, when something's not working, we so often step away from the conversation, but that's when you need to really step in, step in, be open and be really willing to hear what the other person has to say. And even if it hurts, even if you don't agree with it, listen to them, make sure they feel heard and then go away and reflect on it. Because if, if they're saying, well, I find you like this, that's a fact. It doesn't mean you're that person, but mm -hmm. it means that's how they're experiencing you. So dig in, understand, and then you can actually go and work and reshape the relationship. Whereas often what we do when something's not working is we go, oh, well, it's their fault. 
they need to change rather than going, okay, well, what am I doing? What am I bringing to this, this relationship that isn't working? And how do I change what I can change in me? Yeah. I love that so much. I think, I think um, what comes to mind for me is the amount of times that I've called someone that's given us a bad review because of miscommunication or something the team has done and it's, it's nothing to do with me. It's come back and come into my inboxes. We've got a bad review. I call them up, have a conversation and say, Hey, uh, thank you so much for sharing. Can you tell me a little bit more? And then by the end of the conversation, they're like, do you know what? Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you fully understand my situation. I said, I'm going to fix it for you. Let we get it, let we get it fixed up. And then I go back to the reviews and they've changed it to a five star. And then they go and give us a referral a week later to their friend, you know, and yeah. it's, it's that sort of stuff. Like what you just said with, with, with close relationships with friends or family or sometimes acquaintances, they, they get the wrong impression. It's that discussion. It's like going to that hard place and saying, let's talk about this. Exactly. And it's also having the guts to pick up the phone. I mean, so well done you because so many people won't do that. I, mean, I had a situation once where I was at a, um, a public um, venue and I had given a speech and then we did Q&A and I made a comment and someone afterwards took real offence at my comment and they actually emailed me and it was quite a narky email in terms of what they said. I then picked up the phone and, and I spoke to them. Now, you could, they almost, they, you could see they were almost like physically dropping the phone because they were not expecting me to yeah. call. Yeah. Um, and so, it, and I wasn't doing it to call it, call them out or make them feel uncomfortable, but I genuinely wanted them to understand where I was coming from and why I made the comment that I made and exactly. And by the end, they were like, wow, I can't believe you just, you actually found the time to do this. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I think now look at, you know, organizations and systems and processes. And so often people try to outsource stuff. You know, we've got to streamline this. So we're going to outsource this and outsource up. And there is so much of what I do. Yes, I have support around me, but there's a lot of stuff. And people often say to me, oh, wow, I didn't think I'd get an email from you. And I think, well, of course you will, because this is personal. And I don't want to run a business where it's not personal. Perfect. That's so good. <laughs> so I'd love to have a chat around um, possibly, do you talk much around uh, the interview phase of, hiring a, the right team person into your business? Look, a little bit. I, mean, I can certainly talk, talk about that from my own personal experience in terms of what I've seen work and what doesn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not a recruiter. I always say very clearly so to people, I'm not a recruiter. I do a lot of work with people helping them as they're going through and understanding what their next career steps are. But yeah, look, I'm happy to shed light in terms of just my perspective. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So I think like if we're talking about team culture and team dynamic and, and things like that, we need to obviously choose the right person to come into our team without being discriminatory, like being, yep. just choosing someone that's going to be a right fit um, and yep. not someone that comes in as is going to disrupt the culture you already have. So yep. I feel personally, when I coach, I say, we've got to find the person that's going to fit your community and your culture of your business. So um what are some things that you've picked up on through experience or talking to other people around getting the right person or even example, because you've probably got heaps of examples where someone's come in and they're not the right fit. And now yep. we've got to do something about it since that's your main field of expertise. Look, it's interesting because it's such a, it's almost like a conundrum in some respects because our gut instinct can sometimes be really good and our gut instinct can sometimes be completely off beam. So I have found if I go back through my corporate times, if my gut instinct was like, there's a little inkling that this isn't going to work, it never worked. 
But at the same time, there were times when I would meet people initially, I was thinking, oh, I'm not sure about this. But as I got into the conversation and I opened my, like broadened my horizon and perspective around what could work, they were absolutely the right person. And I think that's a challenge because we do look for fit, but we have to be careful that fit doesn't mean I'm just hiring someone who's like me. Because all the research shows that the best teams are diverse teams and because diverse teams make better decisions. And that then means that sometimes we need to look for people who are slightly left of center. And that's why one of the things that I always did, you know, often, you know, HR would get all the CVs, you know, and they'd give me the short list. And I'd always say to them, no, I want all the CVs that have come in. And they'd go, but Michelle, it's hundreds. I said, I don't care. And they'd go, really? You don't want us to? And I said, no. Because what I would invariably find is HR would have quite a, almost like a static approach, you know, tick, 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 tick. And I could look through a CV and I could see something else. I'd go, actually, this person doesn't have the technical skills, but look at all this other stuff that they've got. That's brilliant. If they can do that, we can teach them how to do this. I'd take that any day. And so I really would encourage leaders, get involved don't outsource this, own this process. And yes, it can be time consuming. And, but what I used to do, and I found this really helpful is I'd always look at all the CVs, but then for the top, you know, 10 or so that I thought I would, we really want to do a deep interview with, I'd have coffee with them first, half an hour. Once they got through coffee or tea in my case, because I actually don't drink coffee. um, It would then be the one hour, one and a half to two hour longer interview because in that half an hour, I'd very quickly get a sense to the culture piece. Do I think I could work with this person? Um, Do I think they're going to fit um, and connect with people, but also really broaden and deepen the strength of the team because you want to look at the team holistically in terms of what's the gap that I'm missing Um, And that does mean you need to look at gender and background and, you know, they talk about cognitive diversity these days. Now I had a situation once, which is probably the flip to many people where I actually had to go to HR and say, I really need a male. I know I'm not allowed to say that, but I really need a male. I said, I've got too many women in my team Um, because, you know, just as too many men aren't good, too many females aren't good. You actually need diversity of gender and age. Um, And because what I find as well with age is, when you have different people with different ages, it's not just different experiences, but it's different expectations in their role. And this one lady in my team, um, and she was older and she was awesome because she had no, I'm sure I've had my big career. I'm not interested in, you know, furthering up the food chain. I'm just here to help you get done what you need to get done. And so she was brilliant because she could often be the eyes and the ears of what was going on, implicit trust in terms of what she would come back to you um, with, and so it was a really nice balance in the team because you had someone like that, but then you had other people on the team who were very ambitious. And so my role in some respects was to get out of the way and just let them flourish. Yeah. Awesome. That's so good. So when, when you've got the team um, and it's come together and you've got your team person, what, just on that though, before we move on the coffee piece, I, I love that you catch up for coffee. And if you're like, this isn't, this isn't a fit, you can just say, well, nice meeting you. See you later. And then yeah. and they're off. And it's only 30 minutes. What I've been teaching recently is to utilize Zoom because it's efficient and you can have that coffee meeting like person after person after person and it's quick to cut off as well. Like it's not that awkward of like, oh, actually I've got to get going. Like, and you've got to like depart. It's quite easy to finish up the call quickly and yeah, next exactly. And you can still do it in a way that's respectful. Yeah. And it's respectful of their time and respectful of your time. I mean, I think the thing that I find 
which is probably, you know, it's not a good trait for leaders is you hear stories and I've seen it happen to people where, you know, they've applied for roles, they've turned up for interviews and then they hear nothing. Mm. There's not even a no. And I think, you know, if someone's done you the interest and the courtesy of applying for a job, the least you can do in response is to actually go, thank you, but no, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You need that feedback loop, don't you? On all communication. You do. Always. You do. Yeah. Cool. So once uh, someone is in the team and we're, I'd love to hear how you handle or teach people to handle um, maybe a toxic employee that's causing the whole culture to be affected and brought down and start to, you know, behind the leaders uh, backs are talking and being, you know, spreading rumors, yeah. causing havoc effectively. Um, I was going to say, what a lovely segue, because that's what my third book is all about. Okay, um, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so my third book is it hits bookstores on the 1st of September. So I'm in pre-order at the moment. Um, but it's called Bad Boss. What do you do if you work for one, you manage one, or you are one? Um, I had someone who said to me, I can't imagine anyone's going to buy it, Michelle, if they're in the last category. And I said, well, the challenge is, I said, often in leaders, I mean, this is the real thing about leadership. Leadership is a learned skill and we need to encourage leaders to continue to learn. But when you are in a leader of leader role, so when you're a leader and you're leading other leaders and when you're leading teams, it's really incumbent upon you to recognize what type of team you want, but you don't decide that by yourself. You get the team involved and also to really understand and be open to feedback and open to what's going on in the team. Um, and that does mean you need to observe, watch behavior, listen, seek feedback, you know, get feedback on your team. But also if someone comes to you with an issue that you actually do something about it. Um, so I had a situation where one of my senior people came to me and said, look, there's this particular issue that's playing out in the team. I didn't see it. The issue that was being generated by this other person, they were a contractor. I thought they were awesome. They did everything I needed them to do, you know, superstar performer. Um, so I, you know, I did my homework, did the due diligence, but I did the due diligence really quickly. So within 24 hours, I had got to the bottom of exactly what was going on. That contractor was asked to leave. Mm. Um, and it was amazing the response from my team because they were like, wow, we were like the one person in particular who did it. She said, I was really worried. I said, why? And she said, I thought it was going to, I'd get blowback. She goes, I thought it would fall on me and that you, you would back them over me. And I said, why did you think that? They said, because we know how highly you think of her work. And I said, I do, but behavior always trumps output. Yeah. And I will never have people in my team who don't live the behaviors that we as a team set. Because if I ignore that, I'm basically saying it's okay to behave like that. And it's not. Um, and so for me as a leader, it elevated my leadership in terms of how people saw me. Cause they're like, wow, she doesn't just talk about it. She will actually do something if there's a problem. And so then it meant that people trusted me more. And that's the key thing as a leader. If there's stuff in your team that's going on and you do nothing about it, they're not going to trust you. Um, and, and the biggest challenge, particularly in sales roles, because I've seen this happen where the leader will say, yeah, but they're my best salesperson. And I'm like, well, then put up with the toxic culture that's going to come with it and put up with the fact that you're going to have high turnover and put up with the fact that you may get landed with a bullying claim. Um, so, the, you know, there's consequences. And if you sit back and go, I'm ready to accept the consequence, well, that sits on you. Um, but, you know, most leaders, you know, 
it's hard. It's not easy to sometimes step in when you don't want to lose a good performer. But also the other thing that I would counsel on um, is to actually find out to what extent is the person's behavior that's toxic or ineffective? Is it coachable? Like how much are they aware that they're actually doing this? Mm. And are they willing to then change and do something about it? Because I'm not of the view that you can just, you know, throw people onto the scrap heap. If you can develop them and shift and change their behavior, you know, then do it. You know, for me, there's a difference between you know, that full-time employee and a contractor. For me, you know, as a contractor, you know, they need to come in with all the right skills and that person couldn't see that they needed to do anything differently. And so yeah. in that particular situation it was like, well, I had no choice. You need to go. Um, but for your, for your team, look at them and go, to what extent can I support them? Because if I go back through my early, early days as a leader, and I did some stupid things and some stuff that was not very effective, I just didn't know any better. And I often say, I wasn't a bad person. I wasn't a narcissist or anything like that. I was ineffective because I had all these weird notions around what it meant to be a leader. And I needed to learn leadership as opposed to subscribe to an old fashioned view of leadership that perhaps I'd learned from my dad. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I think leadership's changed a lot. So um, tell, tell me what you think are some of the key things that make an effective, maybe some inefficiencies and some efficiencies in a good leader or a leader. So, yeah, look, it's interesting. I talk about seven indicators. So in the, in the book, I have sort of seven key indicators. And there's a number in there around your understanding power. And, you know, as a leader, you have power. You need to understand how that power is used. You need to understand who you are authentically understand the, the norms that you're creating in the team and the expectations that you're creating in the team. So what's your mindset as a leader and what's the legacy that you're then leaving behind and what are the values that underpin that? So for me, you know, as a leader, you, you know, my version of leadership and your version of leadership can be different and that's okay because leadership is personal and leadership is contextual and different organizations need different types of leaders at different times. So I, I think that's the other thing as a leader is what's your learning mantra? You know, who are you learning from and how are you sort of pushing yourself to always do more and learn about yourself? Um, you know, one of the most instructive things I ever had done to me as a leader was when I got 360 degree feedbacks. And this isn't that sort of, you know, you're just doing like a survey monkey. This is deep, immersive 360s where, you know, your boss does it, your boss's boss gives you feedback, your peers, your direct reports, your others, and you're using something like the Leadership Circle or LSI um, or even Hogan, where they're sort of their tools that are constructed to really help you understand what's the type of leader I think I am, what's the type of leader that other people think I am. Then you can look at the gap and go, okay, how do I want to close that gap? Mm, that's amazing. So that sort of onto my next question was around how do we develop uh, a better le leadership within a culture and within a business? Um, so it's things like that, leadership tools like that, where you can actually assess. Um, and I always say to people, you don't use a 360 as punitive because if it's punitive, it, it um, one, people don't want to go through the process, but they'll game the system because what they'll do is I'll go, well, I don't want to get people giving me feedback who I think are going to be mean to me. I'll only get people who I think are going to be nice to me. And yeah. I always say to people, you know, go out to people who you have a challenging relationship with because you need their perspective just as you need the perspective of people who you think are awesome and they think you're awesome. So 
the assessment piece is really important. That it's the practical reality of, you know, what's the, the tools, the techniques, the support I'm being given so I can actually shift my behavior. And that's not just down to the organization. I, you know, I often see um, leaders who say, well, it's my organization's role to develop me. And I'll go, no, it's not actually. Yeah. That's your role. If the organization develops you, like bingo, that's awesome. Um, and it's a sign of a good organization that they're willing to invest in you. And good organizations invest a lot of money in their teams. Um, but don't just wait for your organization to develop you. Develop yourself. You know, I used to, I, mean, I was very lucky in the organizations that I worked with very generous organizations in terms of their personal development opportunities that I got. But I also spent, you know, a lot of my own time and money developing myself so that I could be the type of leader that I wanted to be. Um, so you do the assessment, you then work out what the gap is, you build a plan to close the gap. Um, and also surround yourself with people who you can use as, you now I kind of call it my career advisory board. Who's the advisory board around you? Um, you know, for some of your clients, that, that, that would be you because you know, you're, you're their coach and their mentor. Um, but who else have they got? You know, is there an advisor that is there sort of the person they go to around legal and branding? Is there a person that they go to because that person has had a really interesting career and can help them nut through problems? So who are the people that you've got around you that can really help you um, just see what's possible? And be a sounding board, but a sounding board that challenges um, and hears what you're saying, but also holds the mirror up and says, well, perhaps it could also be seen like this. Yeah, no, really good advice there. Thanks for sharing that. So how about when we're looking to um, bring a leader in or maybe promote someone from within the technical role or you know, up into a leadership role, what sort of things should we be looking at rather than just technically? In terms of their skill set. Yeah. Or personality um, as well. Yeah. I would be looking for me, and yeah, and this is probably a personal bias of mine. Part of it is that that willingness to learn. So what are what's their their willingness to try things that they haven't tried before? So, you know, we often talk fixed and growth mindset. So to what extent have they got a growth mindset? What's their bandwidth for change and working in an environment that's ambiguous and uncertain? Because we all know that that's sort of um a key part of the working world at the moment. Um, and also really understanding their career drivers and how does this fit with their career? Because one of their, you know, I was often, you know, one of my, sort of, if I go back through my history, one of the best leaders that I ever worked with, she, you know, she used to always say to me, Michelle, you know, the key part of your role as a leader is to help people get to places they can't get to, but for the fact that they're working with you. And so if you can really understand what someone's career drivers and their aspirations are, then you understand, well, how is this role a stepping stone to where it is that they want to get to? And therefore, what's the support that you can provide so that they can flourish in the role and be ready for what comes next? Um, and look, I mean, I must admit, I also look for people that I want to work with. Um, so yes, it's not just about the, um, you know, as I was saying before, be careful about the bias that can be just hiring people like me. But, you know, you want to be able to have a bit of a laugh with someone. You need to have some sort of sense of connection and camaraderie um, and respect. I think respect goes both ways. You know, all the research shows that for employees, respect is one of the most important things in a relationship. And I think it's the same with leaders. Got, you have to be able to respect what the other person is bringing to the table. Yeah, totally. Cool. So um, I'd love to talk now about how do we get our teams to perform better? Like how do we get them? Often we have... Uh, t different people performing at different levels with different effort 
um, different ideas of success. Um, how do we find a unison uh, within our team and how do we get them all firing to help, uh, you know, support a good positive culture at work? I think the important thing is to actually talk to the team about what the team wants. So when you think about a team, yes, there's, you know, their task, but then there's the dynamic of the team. And often what happens is leaders spend all their time thinking about task. What's the system? What's the process? What's the job that needs to get done and who's going to do it? And how do I allocate out responsibility? And they spend less time talking about who are we as a team? How do we connect with each other? How do we hold each other to account? Who do we, you know, what, what do we stand for as a team? What matters to us as a team? Because for me, that sort of the maintenance, the development of the identity of the team is really important. Um, and so understanding that each team is unique. You take one person out of that team and all the group dynamics literature will say and show this, that team is now different put someone new in, only one person. It just takes one person to change the dynamic of a team. Um, and so getting really crystal clear as a team, this is how we want to work together and then get each team member to share. You know, when I'm at my best, this is what I need. And these are the things that I bring to the table. And so you're really getting each other to understand the strength of the collective, but what each individual needs so that they can be their best. Yeah, totally. So uh, what about incentivizing your team? Have you had much success around that? In terms of money? Oh, and time or? Yeah, look, it's interesting because, <laughs> well, it's interesting because there's some really interesting research. This was done by a couple of Harvard professors. So it's probably 10 years old. It was done in a manufacturing context, but I think the context of the research is less relevant than the outcomes. Um, and what they wanted to find out was what really motivates people. And so they went to this, you know, all the, to the employees and they went to management and they said, what do you think motivates your workers and to the employees, what actually motivates you? And they were given five choices, um, recognition and reward. Um, so like, you know, money, um, recognition of the effort that you've put in, interpersonal connection, a sense of progress. And there's a fifth one. And I always forget the fifth one. And it was interesting because when they asked management and employees, there was a difference. The management said, we think what motivates employees is when we go, job well done. You know, that sense of appreciation and recognition, they've done good work. And the employees said, no, what motivates us is a sense of progress because what demotivates us is when we come into work and all that stuff that you told us yesterday was important is no longer important and you've actually moved us onto something else and we don't get feedback on the work that we do. Mm. And I've seen this time and time again, we think um, we're motivated by money and we're motivated by status and reward. We're not. We're motivated when it's not equal. So there's a thing called equity theory. We need to know that we are fairly paid for what we do. And if we're not fairly paid and we don't feel that our, you know, the treatment, the reward, the recognition is fair, what we do is we will balance the scales. We will do less work. And in some you know, extreme cases, people have been known to steal because they're like, well, that person gets paid more than me and I'm actually doing more work. I'm going to equal this. I'm going to balance the scales out. So, you know, money matters. Like there's a certain amount of money that everyone needs because we have lifestyles that we're accustomed to and all that kind of stuff. But often people do not leave organizations because of money and reward and recognition. They leave because they don't like their boss 
or because they've been given a greater opportunity in another organization to do something that is interesting. Um, and whenever I'm working with people one-on-one, -on -one, I always ask them questions around their career drivers. And I would say 95% of the time, the thing that most people say is their reason that they're driven at work is a sense of achievement. The thing that comes last is money. Mm. Often things like security are important. And by that, I mean financial security. So most people have a certain base level of salary that they need to earn. Um, but that's not what drives and motivates them. And so I often say to leaders, think about how you manage processes and how you allocate work. Because I've seen it happen time and time again, where a leader will go, oh, this is really important. We need to get it done. And everyone beavers away and they work really hard. And then the workers are kind of left kind of going, well, what just happened? Because all that effort we put in last week, we've had no feedback. We don't know where it's gone or senior management have now changed their mind. And we've just been told that that doesn't matter anymore. And everyone sits back and goes, I feel totally demoralized because mm. all those extra, that extra effort that I expended feels like it was worthless. Yeah, you sort of need to throw a party if you're going to pivot like that. So it's just like, <laughs> it's like, thanks for helping us change direction. <laughs> like we worked out that that's not going to work. So we're going this way now. <laughs> feels like you're on the hamster wheel. I mean, I go back to when I was working in corporate and I was a very senior, you know, I was at um, director level by this stage. And I worked with this guy, really, really nice guy, like intellectually, very, very, very smart. Drove me nuts because he couldn't make decisions. And so what it then meant was my team spent their time spinning wheels and we never felt like we got anything done. And I remember saying to him one time, this is ridiculous. If I was working at my previous organization, I'd be setting the world on fire because of the hours and output, but I'm setting nothing on fire in this organization. And he, I mean, at least he had the self-awareness to say, that's about me. And I said, I don't think you trust me. And he said, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. I said, because if you trusted me, you'd step back and just let me get on with it. But he was one of those people who needed to be across all the detail. Now, I mean, for him, I eventually left because I thought I can't do this. Um, it's, it, it is actually killing me in terms of working long hours and not getting anything done to show for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to, to think through all of that and how we can get people to feel like they're a part of something bigger um, or on that journey and understand where everything is. And I think drawing out the picture of like where we're heading uh, on the, on a larger scale, when you make those small pivots, then it doesn't feel like it's all work for nothing. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Cause it's got a sense of connection and a sense of purpose. Um, you know, I often say to people, we hear a lot about find your passion and I go, ah, passion, smashing. like seriously, find your purpose because passion can be fleeting and passion can feel unobtainable. But when you're clear about your purpose, why you do what you do, it also makes situations that are hard, easier to manage because you've got a long-term goal. Whereas a passion, it almost feels like you need to love every minute of every day. And that's unrealistic. Mm. There are going to be days when work is great and there's going to be days when work just sucks. Mm. Um, that's the matter and the course of life. Whereas when you've got a purpose, you can sit back and go, I know what my bigger purpose is. And that doesn't mean, you know, you're going to save the world. Your bigger purpose might be, I want to raise a happy, healthy family. And that is a very, that is a noble purpose. It's a good purpose. You know, no one's purpose is better than anyone else's, but it's about knowing your purpose because once you know your purpose, it's very easy to make choice and a trade-off. So when I walked away from corporate, I had people who said to me, oh my God, how can you afford to do that? Um, because, you know, big bucks, lots of money. Yeah. And I, they're like, going, I can't, like they were just, flummoxed they couldn't understand and also because i was walking away from power 
how do you walk away from having power to running a business where in many respects you have no power? Um, and I said, because I've made choices in my life that enable me to do this and I'm not tied to working for an organization, but also I'm really clear about what my purpose is. And that doesn't align now with working in that type of environment. And so for me, the pivot shift in terms of the career driver was I no longer needed financial security, but what I did need was autonomy. Yeah, unreal. That's really cool. Uh, and how did you feel when you did leave the corporate world and started your own business? How'd that feel for you? Oh, look, it was a wild experiment. I'm very open to the fact that in the first year, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, I still remember because I'd been on a meditation retreat and I came home and I said to Craig, I'm done. And Craig goes, excellent. Done with what? I said, done with corporate. He goes, great. What are you going to do? I said, I've got to open a business. And he goes, excellent. In what? I said, I've got no idea. <laughs> Um, that was six years ago. So clearly I have some idea now as to what I'm doing, but it literally was, I had, and I often say to people, particularly when they're looking to change careers, you know, it's really important to find space and quiet. I often wonder if I hadn't gone on that meditation retreat, would I be doing what I'm doing now? Mm. Because working for myself had never been in my game plan. You know, I'd never been one of those people who in the back of their mind had always had this lifelong dream of working for myself. I saw myself as a corporate chick and I just assumed that's, you know, I was good at it. I just assumed that's where I'd stay. Um, but it was in that quiet space. I really figured out what it was that I wanted. Um, and, you know, I, if you talk to people now who know me well, they'll say, you're doing what you were born to do. Now, that doesn't discount my time in corporate because I don't think I could do what I do now if I hadn't had that time in corporate. Um, it's been a very, very instructive and also very powerful sort of base because I really understand corporate dynamics and workplaces and how they work. And so often when I'm talking with people, I'm not talking from theory. I've been there. I've done it. And so there's a real strength in that um, and a credibility and also a safety for people because they go, well, we know when we work with Michelle, she's not talking crap because she's been there. She actually understands the pressures. Um, but I wouldn't change what I'm doing now for the world. I love it. Yeah, awesome. That's so cool. Hey, um, tell me a little bit more about the book writing process. So you said that Craig was like, oh, you're writing another book. And then <laughs> and you're like, he knows what that means. And so can you tell me what that means? I'd love to hear what okay. writing a book means for a family or, you know, the get it for yourself even like how long does it take what does it mean yeah and look i mean look everyone's different but i'm very deadline driven um so typically the way it works is you write the pitch document the pitch document gets sent off to the publisher they need to approve the pitch as in yep we're happy with the concept now most people do the pitch and whilst the pitch is going through the review process they'll be writing i don't tend to do that i'm very good at the japanese just-in-time management approach um and so what will happen, and this has happened before, um, Wiley will ring me and go, brilliant, we finally got it through the review process, we love it. Um, can we have the manuscript by this date? And I'll just go, <laughs> yeah, of course you can. And then I'll get off the phone and go, <laughs> um, for the <laughs> listeners, that was me just kind of gulping. Um, yeah. I am lucky I work with an editor and she's very good. Um, but for me, it's a real discipline. I'm lucky I'm an early riser, but I get up at four o'clock and I will, I will just write, 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 write. So I will write from say four till midday because um, I obviously have to do work, but I will over those because I'm writing in a really confined period of time. Um, it's like social life is cancelled. 
Mm. I'm in bed by eight o'clock. I do no activity over the weekend. All I'm doing is writing because I'm on deadline in terms of, you know, churning out chapters, chapters get sent to the editor. She does stuff, sends it back to me. Um, Weirdly, it's really intense, but I find it works and it works because I already have the content. Um, And by that, I mean, I already have all the ideas. I've already got most of the research done. So it's not like I'm starting from scratch. Whereas I think if you were doing the research and trying to write at the same time, that would be hard. So I've already got the basis of all the ideas there. Um, And, you know, the way you're writing, I mean, I write every week as it is because I do blogs every week. So it's more accessible type of writing. Um, as I said to my supervisors for my PhD the other day, because they're like, oh, Michelle, you're breezed through the PhD. You know, you're an award-winning author. And I said, uh, bit different. I said, the books are kind of like pop culture. <laughs> this is, you know, deep, immersive research, which is really hard. So it's, it's actually quite interesting to watch the difference because they, like one of my supervisors said to me, I can't imagine writing a book. And I'm thinking, you're an academic, don't you? You, you write all the time. She That's said, yes, do. but it's a very different type of writing. Yeah. Um, and so I would, I've often, you know, people have often said to me, oh, how do you write a book? And my one answer to that is discipline. That's it. If you want to write a book, it's discipline. You set the date, you set the intent and you write. Um, because everybody can write, but it's also about finding the mechanisms around you to support you doing that. And I'd also say, like I've had people who've said to me, oh, Michelle, you should start a podcast. And I go, ah, no, got no interest. I love being on people's podcasts. So thank you so much for inviting me. Um, and so it's, it's about finding what works for you. And so I've had people who have written books who hate writing. And I kind of go, then why do it? Yeah. Like find the medium that you like. I really enjoy writing. And as you can clearly see from this, I like talking too. Um, but I have no desire to run my own podcast because it's not my thing. So find what your thing is. Um, I know a guy and he does a lot of art sort of work. And so he doesn't write, but he does these really great memes and sort of little cartoons that he puts out. So whatever mechanism that you use that speaks to you and speaks to who you are. I think that's the important bit. Yeah. For me, it's uh, video. I love doing video and, and uh, talking as yeah. well <laughs> and talking to people like you. Yeah. I love it. Asking lots of questions. So um, anything else that you could add to the team uh, dynamic team culture, anything else that you see as things that people need to know about building a team, um, enhancing a team or even things that they should avoid? The key thing is invest time. Good teams don't happen by accident. Um, And often what I see is people just not spending enough time with each other. And so when they get together, they talk about work. They don't talk about who they are and how they are. And so often um, I do a lot of work with an energy company and it's quite funny because often at the beginning we'll do a check-in and they'll go, yeah, good, fine. Yep. Okay. Yep. Good. And I go, no, no. How are you feeling? And they'll go, uh, what do you mean? How am I feeling? Like they don't want to use feeling words yeah. and they'll often, we joke, they go, Michelle, we don't like using the F word. Um, and so it really is helping people get in touch with their feelings. And I think that's to me, the evolution of leadership, you know, early on when you talk about management theory, it was systems and processes and quality. And then we moved into terms around authentic leadership and systemic leadership and, um, being a dynamic leader or being a systems thinker, I think what we're now seeing is it's the emotionality. We are really recognizing that as humans, we are driven by emotion. We make decisions by emotion. 
you know, you cannot cut off emotion when you work, walk into the workplace. So how do we as leaders understand the emotions that we have and the emotions that our team have and actually recognize that that's okay and that we need to work with them? Um, you know, and particularly in the context of COVID at the moment, I was talking to someone yesterday, I said, there's some really tough stuff going on. Those emotions are real. And what you don't want your team to do is deny how they feel, because mm. as soon as they deny how they feel, that all then gets pushed underground. And that is so unhealthy for them as individuals, but also that can then, you know, filter up into the team because of how they're going to behave and interact with each other. So really getting comfortable to talk about how we actually feel. And that's a language. And it's the language that many people aren't used to yeah no definitely i think i'm definitely a feelings-based sort of guy now i wasn't always um i was always just happy (laughs) (laughs) happy sad angry no just happy and then then i realized i was holding on to a lot of anger and a lot of sadness (laughs) all came bubbling out one day (laughs) and so now you have nuances of i'm joyous i'm bright i'm (laughs) So my team gets to uh, be a part of that because it's sort of revolutionary for me. So I'm like, guys, we've got to talk about our feelings. And they're like, okay. <laughs> well, and the thing is, you know, emotions are contagious. And so, you know, I often say to people, you'll be really like, it's interesting just before this podcast, I was feeling really tired because it's been a big day. Um, and so I, I was dancing around my study 10 minutes before I got onto this call because the you know, music makes me happy. And what I wanted to do was make sure you got the best of me for this session and I was in the right headspace. And so I did what I needed to do to be in the right headspace. Yeah, cool. Well, next time we catch up, we can have a bit of a dance. I think oh, that sounds fun. great. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I really appreciate your time, Michelle. It's been awesome and love speaking with you around this. Um, keen to catch up another time if we, you know, some topics come up or when your book's released and we can talk more about that one. Very happy to, Greg. It's been lots of fun. Cool. Thanks so much. Pleasure.